Great to see you, Mike and Hannah. Lovely to have you back. Swallow my out. Well, good morning. Great to see you. I've just been up at other congregation. We, for those of you who are new here, we are one church. We meet in two locations, and uh, when I'm speaking, I normally speak at both. So I've just been speaking up at Alder Road, and then come down here to speak here as well. And this morning, and probably next week, depending on how this morning goes. Uh, doing a little topical series called Winning the Culture Wars. This time of the year, we normally do this, so having uh, throughout the year, normally teaching through a book of the Bible, uh, this time in July, I normally take two or three weeks to look at something which is a bit more topical and, and something uh, which would, is really kind of better to be done in a seminar-type style where you've got a day or two where you can spend lots of time talking and discussing, but is issues which are worth kind of risking getting out of the seminar and dropping on a Sunday morning with all the potential risks of that because we don't have enough time or you can't have the to and fro that you would in a seminar, but it, things which are worth talking about because they're important. So a couple of years ago, we actually did a series about culture, talking about how we engage with other cultures, what, how different cultures think about different things and how that works out for us as a church. We love the diversity of people from different cultural backgrounds with us. We love the fact that in Gateway Church, there's people from 15 different nations or so. We love to celebrate those kind of things. So thinking about culture is important. And then last year, I did a series about technology, all the changes and challenges of modern technology, how we as Christians should respond to that. And this year, wanting to think a little bit more about some of the, the kind of battles that we, we face, particularly around the areas of sexuality. And these couple of weeks follow on from the series which we just finished recently in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel tells the story of Daniel and his companions, faithful Jewish people who were carried by King Nebuchadnezzar into exile in pagan Babylon and for more than 70 years lived as exiles in Babylon and at times were rewarded by the kings of Babylon because of the way in which they served and built up the empire of Babylon, and at other times were persecuted because Daniel and his friends at times refused to obey the demands of the king when that meant worshipping anything or anyone other than God. And throughout that entire 70 plus years, whether it was being rewarded or whether it was being persecuted, Daniel and his friends remained faithful to God. And that's a great model for us in terms of how we are to live in our world and engage with the world in which we are. And so this morning I'm particularly talking to those who are followers of Jesus. If you're not, brilliant that you're here. Uh, I'm sure this morning will provoke some questions for you, which you're very welcome to talk to me about afterwards. Now, what is this about? Next picture. If you are a Barclays customer over the last few weeks, the app on your phone will have turned to the Pride flag. What's that about? On Thursday last week, I was up in London for the day visiting my oldest daughter, who's a student there. And it was amazing as we walked around London how all the stores pretty much were displaying the Pride flag. All the big brands had adapted their logos and all the independents had had as well. And... Um, it's something which we need to talk about. To be honest, it's something that I would rather not talk about. Well, it's much easier to talk about in a seminar, as I've said. And I didn't realize when I planned this series, which was way back in January or something, that I'll be speaking about this the same uh, week as Pride is going on. Today is the Born Free Festival in Bournemouth. I didn't realize that. That's just the providence of God. But we need to talk about this because it is such a big issue. And... It's quite likely that lots of you are being asked to participate in some way at work. So if you work for the NHS, 
you might have been asked to wear one of these this week and might have wondered how you should respond to that. Or it might be that you've got kids at school and your kids are being asked to participate in diversity weeks, which perhaps don't feel that diverse, that really the diversity which is being talked about is simply in terms of particular sexual beliefs. And it might be that it's starting to feel to you a little bit like, this doesn't feel quite so much about real diversity, which at Gateway we love. This feels like something which is actually very ideological, something which really is pretty political, which actually begins to feel more and more like a religion, that there's something here which people have a kind of religious uh, adherence to, and if you don't go along with it, they're very offended and you're made to feel very bad. Now, what do you do? How do you respond to that? Now, part of my job, part of the reason why members of this church, why you pay me, is to think about these things and to talk about them, even if I don't particularly want to. So, here we go. And today has got the potential to offend everybody, which I'm not wanting to do. But if I do cause offense, I apologize up front, and it'd be great to talk about that afterwards. Now, as I've thought about this over the last few months, and particularly this last week, and as I walked around London on Thursday, and as I've talked to lots of you because I had more and more of you saying to me, what do we do about this? The thing I've come to see, perhaps with more clarity than before, is that the underlying issue here is about righteousness. It's all about righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? Righteousness is a very religious-sounding Word And actually, it reflects the religious impulse which is in every human heart. That every human being on the planet wants to be right and to be seen to be in the right. We want people to think that we're on the right side of whatever moral line there is. And another way to think about this, righteousness, is in terms of morals and moralism. That everybody has moral boundaries. Everybody has things which they do or at least say that they do, which they do in order to be considered right. And everybody has them. They're just drawn in very different places according to your culture and your social class and the context in which you find yourself. But very often, these moral boundaries, these moral foundations, this framework of righteousness is connected to sex. So for a Victorian lady, it would have meant never showing your ankles. That's what righteousness looked like, keeping your ankles covered. For New Guinea tribesmen, it would mean wearing nothing but a penis gourd. I had a fantastic picture of some New Guinea tribesmen in their penis gourds, and I said to Nancy, can I show this? And she screamed in horror. So it's a heads-only shot of New Guinea tribesmen. Or this one, which to us Westerners will seem horrific, but it's a story I read on the BBC a couple of years ago and filed away for such a time as this. In some remote corners of Malawi, there's still a custom where when a girl has her first period, she is then taken through three days of ritual sex, and a man who's known as a hyena is hired by the community to perform that ritual sex. And this man is uh, one of those, and he's slept with scores and scores of teenage girls. And the belief in that community, in that context, is that this is necessary in order to avoid disease and misfortune coming upon the girl and upon her community. Now, of course, HIV is rampant in Southern Africa, and so what actually happens is this man's HIV positive, and so he's sleeping with these teenage girls and giving them HIV. And of course, to us, 
looking through Western eyes, this is nothing other than ritualized child sex abuse. But in that culture, that's how righteousness is defined. In a, what we might think of as a more kind of traditional Western context, what does righteousness look like? It looks like 1950s America. It looks like no sex, no drugs, no fun. In a more progressive Western context, it means recycling and digging a well and helping the homeless. That's what righteousness looks like. Now, in all these examples and all the others we could think of, there is a standard which is imposed, and that standard has to be met in order to be right. But the problem is this. How do you know if your moral standard is the right one? And very often, we don't question the moral framework of our culture because we're just swimming in, a, in the cultural waters and don't think about it. If you're a New Guinea tribesman, righteousness just is wearing nothing but a penis cord. If you're a Victorian lady, well, righteousness just was wearing a dress which covered your ankles. You didn't think about it. You didn't question it because that was the culture. Now, this is what the Bible says about this. Romans chapter 10, verse 3. They did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. Okay, this is the problem. The Bible, which I believe to be true, God's word to us, the Bible says there is a standard, and that standard is God's. But if you don't live by God's standard, you're going to live by a standard of your own, and your standard is not good enough. Whatever it is, whatever it looks like, whatever your culture says it should be. Now, I actually trimmed the verse a little bit. Here's the whole verse, Romans 10, verse 3. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. What this is saying is that it doesn't matter how right you are by your standard if you're not right by God's. If you're not right by God's standard, you've fallen short of the standard to which you should attain. You're not righteous no matter what you're doing. Now, this was written by the Apostle Paul, who was a Jewish man, and he's writing about his people, the Jewish people. And what Paul says about his people, the Jews, is that they had confused substance with appearance. That even though they were God's own people and they had God's own law, they were depending on their own efforts in order to be righteous rather than depending upon the grace of God. And so they actually had failed to be righteous Paul is writing this about his people, the Jewish people, but the principle applies to all peoples that everyone seeks to establish their own righteousness. Everybody wants to be right, and everybody wants to be seen to be in the, in the right, and that's whether your standard of righteousness is recycling, or ankle-length dresses, or the Barclays Pride logo. It's all about righteousness. And as I walked around London on Thursday looking at all the pride flags, that's what I saw more and more, that positively you could say, well, this is all about inclusion and it's all about diversity. Or you could look at it very cynically and say, actually, it's just about big business trying to cash in. Does Sainsbury's and Barclays and all the rest really care about this or are they just trying to cash in on what is culturally acceptable today? But either way, whether you look at this positively or whether you look at it cynically, it's all about the appearance of righteousness. And in our cultural context, here in the UK, 2019, 
the number one way to gain righteousness is to pin on your pride's flag. And that's brilliant because it costs you nothing. You don't need to go through some painful and costly initiation process in order to put on a pride flag. You don't have to even change your lifestyle or your beliefs. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is put that lanyard on, put that flag on, and everybody says you're in the right. And so when we as Christians, if we're perhaps being a little bit uncomfortable about this and thinking, I work in the NHS, should I put on the pride lanyard, or my kids are going to school and it's diversity week, but it's not really diversity, it's just about a particular sexual ideology. How do I respond? What we need to understand is that the foundational issue here is about righteousness. Everybody wants to be righteous. And every society has markers for what righteousness looks like. Now, in our context, in our culture, for a long time, because the UK was supposedly a Christian culture, the markers of righteousness looked at least superficially Christian. The moral framework within which people operated, the foundations of boundaries were at least shaped by Christian values and beliefs. But even then, what Paul writes about his people was true. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. The reality is that you can have what looks like a Christian morality, but actually has nothing more to do with real righteousness than the dress sense of a New Guinea tribesman. It's just about appearance. It's actually not achieving anything. And that's because human efforts to achieve righteousness always equates to failure. There is a standard, and it's God's, and it's so impossible for us to reach that whatever you do, you're never going to reach it. Any effort, human effort, is always going to result in failure. And that's a problem. What's the answer? The answer is the next verse in Romans, Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Yes. Everyone has a law. Everyone has a moral framework by which they live. Everybody has markers, badges of rightness. But Jesus is the one who completes every law. He's the answer. And that's true for every culture and for every person. That's true whether the standard by which you're trying to live is good, like recycling, whether it's something which is indifferent, like the length of your skirt, or whether it's something which, to be honest, is plain evil, like having ritual sex to initiate teenage girls. Only Jesus can actually bring us into righteousness. Now, how does that operate? It operates through the perfection of Christ Jesus. No one else, no other standard ever reaches perfection, but Jesus did. How? Because Jesus is a man, but Jesus is also God. He was the man who was able to reach and fulfill God's standard. And by believing in him, amazing, we get to share in his perfection. This is what Paul says earlier in his letter to the Romans, Romans 4 verse 5, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited 
as righteousness. Wow, that's so amazing. The way that you get righteous, the way you get truly righteous is by faith in Christ Jesus. This is the amazing, liberating power of the gospel. How are you going to get right? How are you going to live right? It's by faith in Christ and receiving then his righteousness, which meets the standard of God. For those of us who are Christians who have put our faith in Christ, we need to cling to Christ and his righteousness and believe it for ourselves. Don't go back to some other standards. There's nothing else which will make you right. There's nothing else which will justify you. Nothing else you can do. It's all about Christ and his righteousness which you have received by faith. So lay hold of that. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, you are living by some standard. You are because everybody does. You have your moral framework. You have your beliefs. It's not enough. The only way by which you can be made truly right is by faith in Christ Jesus. Not your efforts, not your work. His grace, his mercy, his righteousness given to you. His righteous credit to you, counted as yours by the grace of God. Hallelujah. That's a gospel. But until we come to that place of faith in Christ, where we are is Romans 10.3. They did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. And so we need to understand, we Christians, that when we're engaging with our culture on these issues, what we're really arguing about is how to be righteous. And the battles that we find ourselves in come when our culture wants us to bow down to its standard of righteousness and not to the standards that is ours in Christ Jesus. And in our culture at the moment, our culture defines rightness by so-called sexual freedom. But actually, I would argue, is sexual slavery. It doesn't really bring people into freedom at all. And if we're to be biblically faithful Christians we will be at odds with our culture. We will. We have a different basis of righteousness. So a clash with our culture is unavoidable. And the issue then is, well, how do we handle that clash? A great example of this is Tim Farron, who was leader of the Liberal De Democrats until two years ago, the general election, two years ago, 2017. I had a lot of sympathy for Tim Farron, partly because we were at university together and I overlapped a little bit socially. And so I felt a kind of a real measure of pain for him. But you'll remember how it went that at the general election 2017, because he was a Christian and because he was leader of the Liberal Democrats, uh, he kept having journalists chase after him, putting microphones into his face and saying, Tim Farron, do you believe that gay sex is sinful? And he kept running away and refusing to answer the question. And the more he ran and the more he kept quiet, the more journalists put microphones in his face and asked the question, Tim Farron, do you believe that gay sex is sinful? And in the end, he just couldn't cope with it, and he resigned. And he said this in his resignation statement, to be a political leader and to live as a committed Christian, to hold faithfully to the Bible's teaching has felt impossible for me. It's a really sad statement. Now, there's no way of knowing, but I wonder if Tim Farron just got his tactics wrong. I wonder if he'd been much bolder, whether the outcome might have been better. I think what he should have done, and this would have taken real courage, but I want, it couldn't have ended up worse than it did for him. If, when he was asked that question, if he'd responded not by silence and running away, but if he'd responded by saying, actually, it's much worse than you think. 
It's not just that I think gay sex is wrong. I think all sex, which isn't sex between a man and a woman who are married, is sinful. Let's begin the conversation there. And I wonder if you'd had that kind of boldness, whether perhaps the conversation, whether the questions might have begun to dry up. Now remember, the issue is about righteousness. And that's why this matters. It really does matter because we human beings want to be right. And actually, we need to be right. We're made to be right with God. We're meant to be. And the only way to achieve true righteousness is by faith in Christ Jesus. And that means that we cannot bow down to the idols of our age. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the story told in Daniel chapter 3, we looked at a few weeks ago, who were to be compelled to bow down and worship a false god, and they refused, and they said this, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. There comes moments where if you're to be faithful to the God who gives you true righteousness, you have to say, O king, I will not bow down. And that might cost me. God can deliver me. But even if he doesn't, I'm just not going to bow down. And for those of us who are following Christ, those kind of issues are going to come probably more and more where we're going to have to say, I'm just not going to bow down. And that's potentially risky. It's potentially costly. We need real wisdom in this as well as real boldness. But if we don't take that kind of stand, well, everything is lost. We actually lose the gospel. We, we lose the ability to proclaim the way by which people can actually find righteousness and life and salvation and hope. So what does this mean practically for us in this culture where the idol is sexuality? I'm going to give you three quick pointers. I actually want to kind of turn this around and think more about how we as the church behave. And so this is really directed primarily for those who are members of this church and the kind of community I think we should be trying to build here. The first thing is that actually we shouldn't let this issue define us. It's not a win for us if people outside the church think the only things that Christians care about is sex. That's not a win for us. It's not good to be defined by things that you oppose. Actually, we want to be known for the things that we're for. And what we are for is healthy community. We're not trying to recreate some pastiche of 1950s America where mum and dad and two kids live this perfect little contained life behind a white picket fence. That's not what we're after at all. What we're after actually is the kingdom of God breaking out. That means we have to care about some of the issues actually our society cares about. We do care about racial justice. We have to. We do care about the poor. We must. We're looking for the kingdom of God to break out. That means that the sick get healed and the poor get lifted up and the oppressed get set free. That's what the kingdom of God does. But it also means sexual faithfulness. Sexual faithfulness, believing that the only right place, moral place in which to have sex is when a man and a woman are married to one another. That's part of it. It's not the whole story. It's not the only thing we should be known for. It's not the one thing we should be defined by. But it is part of the story. And if you lose that part of the story, you end up losing all the rest. You lose that part about sexual faithfulness and all the other things of the kingdom fall apart as well. 
So we're not to be defined by this, but it is important for us. Second thing we need to do, and this really is a whole day of teaching, and some of you have been in rooms with me where we've done this, but just to flag a few things up, is that we need to be consistent in our sexual ethics. You know, when we're talking about sex, it's not all just about the LGBT stuff. It's not. As Christians, those of us who are part of this church, we've got to have some consistency in the whole thing. That means how we behave sexually generally. It means how we think about pornography. It means how we approach issues like divorce and remarriage and contraception and IVF. You can't just pick and choose from these things. You can't say, well, we're against this, but we'll just go with the world's flow with that. If you do that, the whole thing is lost again. We've got to have some consistency across the board in what we believe and how we behave. The way we behave is because of the righteousness we've received. It's not to earn righteousness. It's because of the righteousness we've been given, and the way that we live needs to reflect that. And so we need to be a community in which there is a truly healthy approach to sexuality in the whole big picture, not just on one issue. And the third thing is that we need to make it as easy as possible for those who are single in our church to also be celibate. Because if we're saying that the only place where you can legitimately have sex is between a married man and woman, we're saying to our singles that you shouldn't be having sex. And in the world, that makes no sense whatsoever. To my friends out in the world who aren't followers of Jesus, the whole concept is just preposterous and ridiculous. You're saying, you're saying that because I'm not married to somebody, I shouldn't have sex with people. That, hey, that's crazy. Yep, it's that kind of craziness we believe. That's what Tim Farron should have said. This isn't just about gay sex. It's about the whole thing. But if we're going to believe that, if we're going to teach that, if we're going to practice that, we need to be the kind of community where we help our single people, whether they're gay or whether they're straight, to be celibate. In Genesis 2.1, after God has made Adam, he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. Now that applies to the man, Adam, who was on his own. But it applies more broadly to humanity. It's not good for humans to be alone. We human beings are made for and need and must have community if we're going to thrive and flourish. Everyone needs community. But not everybody needs to be married with two kids. And that's true whether you're gay or whether you're straight. You need community. Now, in previous generations, probably they worked some of this stuff out a bit better. It was much more normal in previous generations for those who were unmarried to kind of work out community life. For spinsters, not even a term we use anymore, to live together. And nobody thought they were lesbians because they were living together. They were just two single women who, for a number of reasons, found companionship living together. In our society, our society is so sexualized that you can't have two guys with close companionship or two women with close companionship without everybody assuming that you're gay, you're lesbian. In the church, we need to be able to create the kind of community where people can have fr friendships which are really close, companionship which is really genuine, but which isn't tainted by sexual sin. We've got to find ways in which those who aren't married can find genuine companionship with other people who are single and with those who are married. And where those who are married find genuine companionship with other people who are married and with singles without any hint of sexual sin. This means that we also need to be careful about how we speak, the language that we use. It's very easy for those of us who are 
married to say things which are very unhelpful to those who are not. And we can do it in the most well-meaning way. We can say to the single person, oh, I wish that you'd find somebody to marry so you wouldn't be so lonely. Say that with good heart, but it's a devastating thing to say to a single person. Well, the, probably the worst one which I've heard is at a wedding when the person conducting the wedding says to the couple getting married, marriage completes you. It's a terrible thing to say because it's not even true. Marriage doesn't complete you. It can't. I'm married, but my wife doesn't complete me. I don't complete her. That's too great a burden for me to carry. I can't complete my wife. That's way beyond me. The way that she finds completion is in Christ and the community of God's people. The way that I find completion is in Christ my Lord and the family of God. So we need to be really careful about the language we use. We also need to be really careful about the jokes we tell and the humor that we have. And again, I know I've made mistakes. It's just so easy to slip into. You make jokes about physical contacts. You make jokes stereotyping men and women. And that's so unhelpful to those who are single. And it's particularly unhelpful to those who are same-sex attracted. And if we're to build the kind of community where people who are unmarried can stay celibate, whether they're same-sex attracted or straight, we need to have different patterns of speech and different ways of acting together. So much more we could say about all that. Now we can, I believe, win the sex story because we do have a better story to tell. The story our culture tells us about sex actually isn't the way to freedom, it's not the way to liberty, it's not the way to happiness and joy and peace. It's just creating a desperate mess. You dig down into the stats, what's really going on in people's lives, and it's, so often it's just miserable. The women in their 30s who have slept with God knows how many men and now want to settle down and get married and have kids, but find there's no guy who'll commit to them. And why will the guy not commit? Well, because he doesn't need to, because he can have sex without committing. And the guy who actually probably would like to commit, but he's so brain dead sexually because of the porn he's consuming, he doesn't even know how to treat a real live woman. And all the other mess and pain that there is, the spiraling rates of STIs and all the other muck and ruin of people's lives. The story the world tells about sex doesn't bring liberty and freedom and joy. It just brings pain and distress and mess. We, the people of God, have a better story to tell. We know where real righteousness is found. It's found in Christ Jesus. That's where it's found. And that means we've been set free from chasing all those other standards. Don't have to chase another standard to be made right. No, you find righteousness in Christ. And it means that we've been liberated from the sexual tyranny of our culture. We can live free from all the mess and the muck that the world would seek to dump upon us. And it means that we can also live with boldness. Boldness to live in line with the righteousness of Christ that is ours. Christ doesn't declare us to be righteous and then just abandon us to the world. No, he's the God who's able to save us. And so as we think about these issues in our culture, we shouldn't do so fearfully or with trepidation. There's going to be situations which are hard. There's going to be moments which might be costly. There are going to be situations at work where you say, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to bow down. And that might cost you, but we mustn't be afraid of those things. We need to have the wisdom of serpents, the innocence of doves, because we have the righteousness of Christ, and that's the message that the world's needs to hear. Amen? 
Let's pray and then let's come back to worship. Lord, we pray for every one of us in this room. Jesus, I don't know everybody here today. I don't know the stories. I don't know what's going on in each individual heart right now, but you do. And Lord, I pray for those who need to know your uh, balm poured into their hearts even now. Lord, I pray for those of us who are part of this church and committed together to being a community who pursue you and celebrate the righteousness that is ours in Christ. I ask that you'd help us to do that with joy and with boldness, with confidence and courage, and to keep speaking out the good news of the gospel. This is the way. This is the way. Look to Jesus. Pray you'd help brothers and sisters here who got real issues at work and other situations where they're battling with these things. I pray, yes, Lord, give them wisdom, give them grace, give them courage. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who don't yet know you, maybe troubled, even offended by what I've said. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to see your beauty, your preciousness, how good you are, and how good it is to follow you. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to be a church, and I pray for churches across Bournemouth and Paul and across our nation, Churches where there be communities of people who do display to the world what healthy family looks like, what healthy friendship, brothering and sistering, companionship looks like. Help us to get this stuff right, King Jesus. Lord, I pray for those who, amongst us whose lives are a bit messy. Lord, that you would help them to get things tidied up and clean because you're the one who cleanses and renews us. Lord, thank you that you're so amazingly patient and gracious towards us. Thank you you don't treat us as our sins deserve but you treat us with mercy and grace again and again. And it's that grace, it's that mercy to which we cling now. It's the righteousness of Christ for which we give thanks. We bless you. We praise your name, King Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and uh, worship him together.